in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, from right here in the steel city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And joining me today is my good friend and my good co-host here, Mr. Dustin Melbarnes from deep in the heart of Texas. How you doing, sir? Good evening. Glad to be the good co-host. All right. And coming to you also from deep in the heart of Texas, but in Austin, Texas, and the meaning of the movie podcast, it's your special guest and screenwriter, author, and podcaster, filmmaker, Mr. Rob Stennett. How you doing, sir? I'm great. We're talking about movies and uh, getting to meet you fellas, and it's an honor to be here. I hear you like movies. And since you like the meaning of movies, you must like thought-provoking movies. Rob, what is one of the most thought-provoking movies for you? That's a great question. Um, few that come to mind. One is Magnolia, one of those movies that like, maybe it's not the most thought-provoking movie, but it's one of those movies that I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that in a movie where they're just throwing out different things and throwing out different ideas. And it really grabbed me. Um, and then the other one that just comes to mind right away is The Shining, one of those movies that you can take as just a straight up horror movie, but there's also like so many means and metaphors and different things to think about. And so those are the few that come to mind right away. It's also good with The Shining is that it, so many people are familiar with it and they know it that everybody's favorite part or the thing that stands out to them is different. So it really does spark conversation. If you just, you could do hours on the shining alone. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there's literally a whole movie like about it with different takes of what this mean and what's going on there. So Kubrick's whole filmography is really good at that. But for me, the shining is just one of those that just always I come back to and are just, okay, what did this mean? What is he saying here? I love it. We covered it earlier and it was a wonderful movie to study and it's a great piece to talk about too. So Dustin, how about you? What's one of your most thought-provoking movies? When it really came down to this question, I was like, The Matrix. Thought-provoking? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I've shared it before, but there was no lore or setting that I had ever been so engrossed with. And for a young mind, being able to talk about such a uh, widespread movie, uh, all types of theories as to how it works... Uh, I'm such a huge fan of the in, the entire franchise, but I remember the first internet forum I was ever on as a boy was called The Last Free City, where we were all theory crafting as to how could any of this work? Who really knows what? Simple things like don't try to bend the spoon. That's impossible. <laughs> Instead, just try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. That's a thought experiment. You could teach seminars on it. That's 17 weeks. That's a college semester. It, it helps that it's one of my favorite movies, too. All right. And one we had, we had a great time covering that one. And I'm going to make it three for three for movies we have covered mm. here. Mr. Nobody is one of the, my most thought-provoking movies. It's, it's one of those movies that 
it's just so amazingly well crafted and acted, but also you just absolutely invariably will find yourself sitting there thinking about your own life and the consequences of even small decisions that you make in your own life and the ripple effect that they can have and all the different junctures that you have in your own life. I really like that thought process. So uh, there are other movies that do it, but I think Mr. Nobody is just wonderfully done. And I think that that's, that's, my, that's one of my most thought-provoking movies. Rob, what's the last movie you saw? So I just saw Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, it took me forever to go see it because I was like, okay, I've got a bunch of kids. I'm like, when am I going to find a big chunk in my schedule? But it was one of those that I really wanted to see in theaters. So this weekend went and saw it. And um, it's pretty amazing. Like, it's a lot to take in. Um, I don't know <laughs> if I've ever seen a three and a half hour movie like straight like that. But yeah, just I wanted to go see it. I wanted to see it in the big screen. Marty's my guy. And so just wanted to experience it. So when saw that last weekend. I think it's a step down from the time that he put into Irishman. So, that's true. I mean, you know, that, 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 is that, is that a short Scorsese movie now? I don't know. <laughs> that's a great point. Uh, Dustin, it takes a how- lot for me to sit down for three and a half hours. Man. <laughs> that, that's tough. Dustin, Dustin craves, as he calls it, the tight 90, the 90 minute miracle. Like he loves, he loves these movies that are just in and out. Very easy. What a joy. And it doesn't have to just be like a quick comedy. Uh, I think, what was it, 10 years ago or 11 years ago, Gravity is 90 yes. minutes. Like yeah. you, can, you can get a lot done in 90. Uh, not saying that anything over that is dragging. Uh, our movie tonight, for instance, is not dragging, even with its time. But uh, I, do, I do really like a tight 90. All right, Dustin, how about you? What's the last movie you saw? I had caught Lawless with uh, Shia... Uh, Tom Hardy, Jessica Chastain, and criminally not using enough Gary Oldman, uh, underused, I think. Uh, I thought it was good, but I, I think it was, um, it's, it's kind of uh, moonshining, bootlegging uh, world in, in the woods, which is kind of where I'm from. Uh, and so, but I would say it's two or three qualities away from being great. I, yeah. I enjoyed it, but uh, it, it was, the setting was good, but uh, it wasn't, it, it didn't reach that upper echelon, but I was glad to have caught it. Um, last movie I saw was Birdman. Oh, uh, we are here. At, we are here at the new retro. We are entering movies that we accept into 2014, which is the theme of today's show. And that was the best picture winner from 2014 there. So I won't talk too much about it. Just see it. It's a very, there's not much like it. I'll say that. Now, Rob, tell us a little bit more about the meaning of the movie podcast. What is the meaning of this? So love film, wanted to do a movie podcast, um, and I consume them all the time. You're a madman. Who would I do know, that? I know. So, uh, you're my people. You're my tribe. And I'm, I've listened to your guys' episodes, and you guys do great stuff. I love uh, covering film, love doing movie podcasts, but wanted to do something. And I was like, okay, what's most important to talk about? And I was like, really? I just like to talk about what the filmmaker's trying to say. And for me, in one sense, it's like, who am I to explain what the filmmaker's trying to say? Like, what am I, like, how, like if David Fincher heard me saying, this is what your movie means, I'd probably be totally embarrassed that I'm trying to do that. (laughs) But in the other sense, I'm like, what's more important to talk about than what this movie means and what it's trying to say? And so um, for me, that's a little bit, my journey is just like trying to explain, all right, this is what this movie is. This is what it's trying to say and just wrestle with the ideas and themes. And it's not all like heavy duty, like, oh, we're talking about David Lynch movies and stuff like that. I'm like, all right, Jurassic Park, what's going on in that? Are they trying to say something, you know, Terminator 2? And then and then other times we're 
we do like lighter fare and then we'll do, you know, heavier stuff. Like we actually did just cover Killers of Flower Moon. That's why I saw it. So um, a little bit of both. But I just love wrestling with like, all right, what's this trying to say? What does it mean? And what does it make me think about my own life and journey and story? I like how your lightweight examples for Jurassic Park and Terminator, which still have very much have thought and content behind them. Like you didn't reach for like crank. What are they saying? Right. <laughs> you know, what is the meaning that they're going for here? So. Boy, we tried, didn't we? <laughs> but, but I think sometimes people just think it's like, oh, it's the dark indie movies or the prestige dramas that are really trying to say something. And it's like, no, I think a good film has a soul to it. You know, Jurassic Park is very much about consumerism and very much about like, okay, flippant science. And it's also a thriller and it's also fun, but there's, there's heart and soul behind the story. And so I love to just wrestle with that. And maybe the other reason I started it was because I found myself just consuming movies over and over again and then just not thinking about them. And so I was like, I just want a place where I watch a movie and then think about it. And I'm forced to like have conversations about it. So that's why I love doing my podcast. And that's why I love being on this because to me, what's more fun than to watch and wrestle with the ideas and craft of what a movie is. One of the coolest things about doing this show is building a great network of friends who just are really enthusiastic about movies, but I genuinely enjoy listening to your oh, show, thanks, Rob. Man. So uh, definitely, definitely check out what Rob's doing out there. It is, uh, there's always room in your phone for more movie podcasts, I say. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I already listened to the uh, Scream episode. Oh, nice. That was, that was a fun episode. We got a lot of downloads from that one. A lot of Scream fans out there, I guess. So, Dustin, what movie are we going to cover today? Gone Girl from the new Retro 2014. That's right. Newly inducted as the what we call retro here. Ten years. It's been a decade. This stars Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, Neil Patrick Harris, NPH, <laughs> Tyler Perry, and Carrie Coon. Neil Patrick Harris and Tyler Perry stepping out of their comfort zones in this one for sure. So, release year 2014. Budget for pretty hefty, $61 million. It grosses $167 million domestically. Good return there. Placed 18th in the box office behind How to Train Your Dragon 2 and ahead of Divergent. The number one movie that year, American Sniper. This film became David Fincher's highest grossest domestic box office film, beating out a curious case of Benjamin Button. IMDb is kind to this movie. It gives it an 8.1. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like this a lot as well at 88%. The audience score right in tune with that at 87%. So this movie is liked by the audience. And you know who else liked it? The Academy Awards nominated Rosamund Pike as Best Actress. The Golden Globes nominated it four times for Best Director, Best Actress, again to Rosamund Pike, Best Screenplay, Best Score. It is a BAFTA nominee for two. Again, Rosamund Pike, Best Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay. A Critics' Choice Award winner for Best Adapted Screenplay, Saturn Award winner for Best Thriller and Best Actress, Satellite Award nominees for seven of them, Best Film, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Score and Sound, and the Hollywood Film Awards winners for three of them. It is an MTV Movie Awards nominee for four times and a Screen Actors Guild nominee for number one for Best Actress and the Writers Guild of America Awards nominee uh, for best adapted screenplay, that is a lot of nominations. Maybe not as many wins to go with it, but certainly a lot of attention going to this one. A lot of buzz, and I know you had a lot of people tell you you got to see this movie. Rob, had you seen this movie before? I had. I saw this movie in the theaters, and I'd even read the novel beforehand. And so, um, I love the novel. Like, um, I, it was so compelling, and so I was really curious, like, what he was going to do with it, and so. 
saw it in the theaters and now it's one of those like in my rotation that I probably I, I'm just a big Fincher fan. That's part of the reason that I love to talk about this movie. And so I probably watch it every two, three years. You know, it's just like you can't watch it too much. It's a little <laughs> it's a lot, but it is kind of a <laughs> it is kind of compelling in a good hang. Like once you get into it, like it's just it does. I mean, like you said, it's a longer movie, but it does move. And so it's it's a movie that I've returned to a couple of times. Interesting. Does it maintain its, uh, obviously I'm not going to spoil this, but it is a movie that has a couple of jaw dropping moments and twists in it. So without telling what those things are, do you feel like it's holding up for you upon rewatch? I do. I think there's nothing like seeing some of the twists for the first time, but at the same time, it Mm -hmm. was almost like, I mean, it's interesting. We're talking about a 2014 movie being retro, but it did feel to me like they don't make them like this anymore. Like I can't remember the last thriller that i saw in theaters that i personally feel is as compelling as this one is like it just it moves it's got stars it's got an a-list director it's got a great novelist based on screen a sharp screenplay i was just like for me personally it like checked every single box and i was and i'm like this movie holds up better actually than i thought just because it's so tight and it's so engaging and it even though it's just like, okay, it's just a thriller. I'm like, it's hard to pull off a movie of this caliber. And I just don't see it as much when it comes to thrillers being released in theaters. Now, Dustin is, is this a tight 160 for you? It's definitely not tight no. uh, in terms of its, <laughs> in terms of its length. Uh, but uh, just to kind of follow up, it, it really is something kind of special. I could see myself returning to this movie again, uh, even at its length. Uh, and that'll be the last time I mentioned that because uh, it's a running joke on the show. But even still, this this movie was uh, came to me. This was my very first time watching it. I missed it when it came out. I had heard that it was heavy with its time period of like late uh, 2000s, early 2010s, released in 2014. It, it does keep you in a very specific range. Uh, sometimes the easiest way to think about if something holds up is their technology and so there is cell phone but it's not smartphone yet right uh and so that that helps you uh there there might be some things like uh way in the future right let's just say 40 years from now uh and if we look back 40 years ago you know 1983 uh there's still a lot of things that hold up from then Uh, this movie is going to hold up for decades uh, but there might be some things way in the future where they say wait a second a uh a crime happens and it's all over the television that might be some who knows what the world will be like but uh, it will be a nice microcosm of this is how this was what the biggest tv was right. um you know the joke about like the most like the highest ratings you could get as a high speed car chase right maybe <laughs> it's not the same anymore and so when you have a high profile situation like the content of this movie uh, that is something that i think it's almost a weird little time capsule but uh i can see this holding up for a long time i've got to give the ad campaign some credit they didn't just spoil this movie if you actually go look up the previews for this if you go back they they so often movies now just spoon feed you a massive amount of information that i do not need and this one this ad campaign was one of the better handled ones in my opinion i remember being intrigued i didn't know exactly what it was but it stuck with me and i wanted to see it and i did not get to it until uh more recently it was just on hbo and i was like you know what 
and I do need to see that. And so I saw it. And so this, it had, it was more fresh for me probably two years ago that I first saw it. And I also had some big, you know, I had some just jaw dropping moments, some, some real big twists in here that really got to me as a great thriller should do, but it's bigger than that. It's just so well-crafted. I, I returned to it and it does lose a little bit from not having those big jaw dropping moments, but I will say there's a lot of content craft and appreciation there so that even upon returning to it, there is still much to enjoy, especially for somebody who appreciates well-made film because this is, this is, this is uh, really well done. So as Rob said, I, I like Fincher most of the time as well. I can't say that I'm across the board, but I feel like he's getting, I feel like he's aged better. I like that. He's one of these people like didn't just like drop down an amazing piece of work early on, then never lived up to it. I think he's the opposite. I think he's just getting better and better. So. Yeah, I think this is like his golden period. Like for me, it was like Zodiac is a film that I adore. Social Network, I think is incredible. And Gone Girl, like that's like a mm-hmm. holy trilogy to me of like, I think that's his best work. Like, I think that's his, he's still doing good stuff, but I think those three films in particular are just, I mean, top of his game, you know, like every single form. And so this one coming out of the, those and they're all a little bit different, but him doing that, I, that's why I love this movie so much. Uh, I, I love Dragon Tattoo. Dragon well, Tattoo, but, yeah. That's um, right around too. Well, if we go back yeah. to your, your question to, to lead the show off, it's thought provoking. A second watch is not going to, you're not aiming to be surprised in the same way you already know, but uh, to be able to take the knowledge you now have and see how can a second viewing hold up. And I have to imagine it that it's up to your brain to do so. And uh, I, I can't wait to watch this a second time. We have some very interesting characters. And so even when you know the final resolution, what makes them move in the manner that they do? That is very interesting and that delivers on that. So it's not one of those, ah, you know, you know, it's not, it's not the happening by M. Night Shyamalan. Right. It's just like, ah, there's that, <laughs> there's that twist. And, and I have no desire to do this again. So, um, but uh, it's not that. So it's not the happening. I'll tell you what is happening. We will spoil this movie. After this, we will be back. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, this is your final warning. There are spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen Gone Girl, then you're going to want to check it out. All right, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Gone Girl since 2014, do you want to refresh people's memories? Nick Dunn arrives home on his five-year anniversary to find his wife Amy missing and some signs of a struggle. Detective Boney attempts to investigate this disappearance with Nick's help through treasure hunt style clues left behind as the last places Amy would have been before her disappearance. Through flashback, we learn of their courtship, 
their happiness, and their struggles, leading to Amy fearing for her safety and documented in a diary. Other info revealed include Nick's infidelity, Amy's displeasure in moving to fly over Missouri, and a brilliant, meticulous step-by-step instruction on how to frame your husband for murder, as we see that Amy is not just gone, she is in hiding and planning her husband's downfall, with the assist of a white-hot media narrative. Nick gets wise to the plot and enlists his sister as an ally and a mega defense attorney to manipulate the media heat while also attempting to bring the truth to light. Meanwhile, Amy's plan goes awry after being robbed by some Ozark riffraff, my kind of people. Amy turns to an old flame Desi for safety and some contingency conspiracy while also being moved by Nick's media performance. Desi becomes a casualty in Amy's schemes, and she returns back renewed with who her husband has become, while Nick is forced to play along with the quote-unquote storybook ending to this uh, media frenzy to ensure his innocence in this murder case. In one final television interview, the happy couple reveals that they are expecting, and everyone gets what they want, what they deserve, or simply just what they have left. All right, all right. So let's let's go ahead and start this off. Just a little taste of what you're doing here. This is for me one of the big meanings here is the role the media now plays in this with news coverage. This isn't just a straight up murder mystery. It's it's a battle of perception, right? And information that is presented through through TV. I, I don't know, Rob. This this is one of those things where there's more than initially meets the eye, and it's already a compelling story. Right, but. Tell us what one of the things that are grabbing you. What give us your meaning here, man? The biggest meaning of the movie to me in this film is when we talk about twists. Normally, what we're talking about is the end of the movie, right? Like, I don't want to give. I'm not going to give away what happens, but we're talking usual suspects. We're talking Fight Club, Memento. You know these these movies, The Sixth Sense. These movies where it's like, okay, in the last frame, the big twist happens, and then oh, everything I was there. What's so great about this movie? is the big twist in it is at the halfway point. And so for the first half, you think you're watching one story. And then the second half, you realize like, oh, we're watching a completely different story. And that's where a lot of like, oh, this is a movie about crafting perception. This is a movie that's uh, these two. This couple is essentially like fighting through the media, fighting for innocence, making their case. It's even a metaphor for marriage itself of just like the way that we attack each other in kind of the most intimate ways and that sort of thing. And so there's so much to it. But to me, that midpoint twist, which is just rarely done. I think of Psycho as another one of those movies that like you're going through and there's this kind of iconic midpoint twist, but it's rarely, rarely done. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what sets this movie apart and makes it so special. And so I, I'm curious from you guys, like seeing it for the first time or coming upon it, like, how did that hit you? And even as like the metaphor of like, oh, I thought I was watching this story and then I'm watching something different. Did you piece it together? How did you piece it together? And how did that like hit your perception of the film? The midway point of like an hour five and then we get another hour and a half of how you said it's one story, then another. It's two and a half stories, maybe 2.75 stories going on at once. And enveloping the media as its own character potentially as a as a a boxing ring for where they are fighting it out 
uh, one from tons of, of scrutiny and attention, one completely in the shadows. And it is at that point that if you weren't already gripped by if this was just one story, if you weren't already gripped, then once you get the second part, that everything you'd been listening to in terms of this diary voiceover flashback, then we're dealing with uh, someone who, as a character, elevated incredibly with her, uh, with her brain, with her uh, planning, with the lengths that people would be willing to go to get what they want or to force someone else to not get what they want. It, it all became, you had mentioned, uh, uh, Rob, about in a marriage, about how you fight in intimate ways. And at first, you might, you know, the first hour of this movie, you might think that this is a story about Nick and not a story about all the people involved. Right. And everyone's other presence is just kind of tolerated gives you a little context then once we see that it's not uh about uh, ben affleck's character that it's about uh nick amy nick's relationship with his sister margo uh you've got these other roles that seemed very small until the more the story is revealed and it gets it gets big so i will say i did not piece anything together and i do not try once I learn that this is unraveling in the way that Fincher wants it to, I don't try to point at the screen like I saw that coming. Oh, that's going to happen. Now, in hindsight, there are things like that. For instance, we have our uh, two people in the Ozarks, uh, specifically, I think it's Greta is her name, uh, Lola Kirk's character, yeah. uh, and the guy who is kind of yelling from over the fence. Jeff. Jeff. When I saw that, I said, that's trouble. Right. And it was. And it was trouble in a way to where now that you're- Jeff looks like more trouble than Greg. <laughs> it's just like, it's like that guy. <laughs> well, well m maybe, but maybe not. And uh, hey, if you're from the mountains, you, you can, you can kind of see that trouble. And so it, when I saw it, it wasn't an, uh-oh, I'm worried. It was lean in a little closer and see where this is okay. going yeah. and i was so glad to do it even though the scope is big with the media coverage rob it really does feel quite intimate between our two yeah. primaries even with all this stuff going on looking at the structure of this is very interesting so it takes 42 minutes before things actually start to unravel so we come to like these characters we tend to like the relationship that's a really good move by the director so we we, we like nick and amy and that, that's a good thing. And it's 42 minutes before when they move to Missouri, when trouble starts to happen. We get the seed sown that something's not right in Amy. She's, had a, she's, she's been raised in a way that, like us being the amazing Amy and not being fully loved or accepted by her parents. And initially you think, well, that's hurtful. That sucks. But what that does to the character later goes on to explain a whole lot. Right. Like, the, the, again, seeds are being sown. It's well-constructed, so it holds up upon second viewings. But Justin's right. 105, big, big shift. And you're right. Psycho was the first thing that comes comes to my mind. The other one was we did one. Uh, it's one of the greatest thrillers list on the AFI from uh, Laura, which we covered. Oh, yeah. This one did my deal. And it's a really great movie. So if you like Gone Girl, definitely check out Laura. It's also an amazing movie, too. Um, and so it speaks but, to what Rob said uh, earlier about how they don't make them like this anymore. 
is if our if our uh, examples that are close are from eighty years right. ago. Right, right, forty four, forty four, and sixty. Right. I think. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, you're right. But I mean, um, th- the fact that she's alive. Let's just go ahead and say it. Like we find out she's not dead. She's alive. We are afraid she's missing, and that shifts the perception e- enormously. And then, if over the next mm, thirty minutes, we come to not like Nick. Like we we come to we come to commiserate with her, and through the very powerful monologue that she has, and so this are this is a really interesting pivot. We find that she's cheating, and then we don't like the character so much when that happens, and then we find out, you know, you start to commiserate with her, but what she's doing is beyond. It's hard to get behind what she's doing as well. So we she reaches another level of villainy. So. In the end, neither one of these characters is extremely likable, but the entanglement that they have is really interesting. I think it's interesting as when she pivots, as her money is taken by the you know Ozark couple, as Justin's putting them, Greta and Jeff, it's really interesting to see how smart she is. She shifts her plans. She's done. She's, her plan's ruined. She has no way to keep her cover and to function. She, she had all this planning out and her plans ruined and she pivots and she uses Desi. She's very manipulative. Right. She was very manipulative early in the movie. That's the danger of this woman. That's the idea of it that she wants. And the first time I watched it, I really didn't know how that, that broadcast was going over for her. I didn't know what was going down. And I certainly didn't get the staged uh, abuse that she was doing in front of the, the cameras. I remember thoroughly being confused by what is going on here. And... I knew something was wrong in this when Desi comes home to meet her, but they set up this murder scene that's quite jarring. That I didn't see that coming, you know, it's shocking. at all. I thought she was gonna. I thought I thought she was gonna set him up for maybe a uh, sexual assault case, but not the case. She goes way to she goes straight to murder, and in, in, in glorious, like you know, visceral fashion. And then she comes home and it's a media game to her and she loves the attention. And again, it probably is in some way shaped back by what I said at the beginning. That attention that the media of the amazing Amy and you know all of this stuff, this has warped what is normal for her. It does feel, I mean, I remember first seeing it and it's at the 105 mark and you're like, okay, where do we go from here? Like, how does this story like keep getting tense? And I think that's what like the construction is so amazing is like, okay, now there's another twist. Now there's another twist. The noose is tightening. The noose is tightening. And it is just like, it's a page turner on a film. You know, it really does feel like that where you're like, I'm not sure where this is going, but I'm leaning in. And for me, I think on rewatches, that's what I appreciate so much is again, it's not just like one twist. There's so many things where you're like, okay, she's in this place and she's like trying to seduce this guy. What's she doing? Like you learn to realize like, okay, what's Amy doing and you're trying to figure out what's going on with her, which makes her this wonderful, like, she's like the Joker and Batman all at once. It's like, okay, she's hmm. sort of heroic, and she's a villain at the same time. You're not even sure what to feel or think about her. She is in this relationship with Nick. And so we don't get a full understanding of what their current life is because what we see through the diary is the courtship and early times. We see the hard times during the recession when they both lose their jobs. It was lost on me a little bit as to her desire, whether it's in New York or 
what other kind of social circle she was running in with writers being forced to go to Missouri, like not, not where she wants to be. We don't have any picture of how the normal day-to-day goes with them. Uh, we just have snippets and stories of it. And so the time that it takes from her realization that Nick isn't what she he's he's not the man maybe he's not trying anymore but he's not the man that she fell in love with with what we are given she is driven to this planning she is driven to this revenge you might think and it's it's not until we start talking about it guys it's not until that we have a chance to discuss the movie that i start thinking to myself all of that energy that went into this plot could that energy have gone into working harder on the marriage (laughs) right but that's not the movie that's not what we really want we want to see this uh what what lengths is amy driven to i perceive that nick's apathy and lack of engagement kicked in before hers i feel like she stopped trying that's true after nick i feel like nick lost his way and was just like you know one of these people who sat down and just kind of quit and and wallowed in his own sorrow and um, didn't really check in with his wife when it came time to moving and stuff like that. And so yes. he didn't appreciate her. I mean, like I said, Nick is not like this character that you absolutely sympathize I with. I agree. I mean, because the the story follows him, he's your protagonist and like she's, she's Amy's your villain. But on the other hand, that 106 monologue is very powerful. Yeah, it is. You, I got to I got to ask and I, a nice guy. I didn't plan on on like having this be like a bomb drop or anything and I'm certain that there might be online discourse about this and we know this about the the classic lesson in English class the unreliable narrator but we know that what is being written in the diary is meant to incriminate Nick. She says that most of it's real to start with, and it okay. has to be. Hold on. And then she says she's served the fabric. Russell, you said most of it's real and it has to be. That's where I think if you want to get back to your initial question to start the show, like thought provoking, I'm not here saying that Nick is a good guy. In fact, I love that he said that he isn't. But uh, it does make you think that some of the, like for instance, the, the shove into the banister which is a, a, a very jarring uh, moment yes. as an audience member. It's one of those moments where I'm not clear with how real that was. That's what I'm getting at is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, and that's where a second watch of this movie could be really, really good. How much of what we're seeing is real. And if it, and if it is cool, it, it, if you take it all as, oh, this was how it went down, it's just as good. But if there's a chance that a lot of the stuff that we see is, is truly not the way it went down, it just, it just opens the mind up for so much more. Uh, I would say 99 out of a hundred movies like this would be something along the lines of she made a mistake and we got her, especially with the presence of our detective team. And then the feds afterwards is that she made a mistake and we got her. We don't have that in this movie. No. That's no fact she manipulates him into covering it. That's up. something really special, I think. Well, and it works because we want to believe the story. You the first question you asked Russell was about the media and the narrative and that sort of thing, and we want to believe the story of she comes home, they're reunited, and the cops want to believe it. The and I do believe that happens sometimes where we want to believe the story so bad that we let people get away with stuff that they shouldn't get away with. Hmm. And this is a powerful way to like 
tell that and make that happen. And no one's innocent. That's what makes this movie so smart. I don't think Margot. I think she's she, she's devoted she's devoted to her brother to a fault. But I mean, Margot's a pretty decent person in the end. She is, and Carrie Coon, I love her. But even her, like, is she um, enabling him? Is she just forgiving him for everything? Is she like okay, like? She no, just she like scolds him pretty hard. She scolds she him does. pretty hard for cheating. She scolds him for like, you're going to not leave. How can you do this? Like, you know, I mean, so she's incredibly the voice of reason so often. She, she's she's the best person in this movie. Although uh, I will admit Tyler Perry really impresses me in his role here. Like, this is not the Tyler Perry I'm used to seeing. Certainly, he's electric. He's not Medea. Isn't he electric yeah. in this movie? Like, I'm like, why did he not take more roles like this? He is so. I didn't know believe- he had. The, I did not know he had this in him. Did you? No. I mean, you're you're like this is Medea. This is the you know goofy Tyler Perry, and I, he's totally <laughs> believable. He's just <clears throat> yeah. You're like <laughs> it is. It's like this pitch that he has that you're like, where was this? Where's this been your whole career? Why have you never done this really before or since? I guess it's yeah, after this I mean, that he assumes the Alex Cross role. Yeah. Even still, when I saw that it was him, I thought to myself, eh, it, but it's because I hadn't seen this. I hadn't seen this performance. In the, If we look at it from the media perspective, the defense attorney of people like this is no one's champion. He's the charmer. Like he knows the game and he knows how to play it. And like he sees, he sees through things and knows how to tilt it to someone's advantage, almost like a political campaign advisor. Well, that scene where know. he's throwing gummy bears at Ben Affleck and like, quizzing him on what to say and what not to say in the interview it's just scenes like that that make this movie so sharp and fresh and engaging and it's just like i bought it i bought a hook line and sinker of like okay that's how this happens of this guy who's media prepping him who's throwing it in the other guy who's feeling cocky it, it did feel more like a political candidate than it did a murder trial i don't know how they paid his bill in the end but um <laughs> <laughs> seriously but i think ben affleck he's almost a natural fit for it in his own life he's become so scrutinized in the media for who he's dating, which Jennifer he's married to at this point and whatnot. So, I mean, there's an enormous amount of attention thrown on him. And I mean, that frustration and that onslaught of uh, perhaps even the smugness of it. You know, I mean, he was a very good fit for this. I know they said John Hammond was seriously considered for Nick Dune. And I, I have to admit, I might even like that even better. I might have reached for that at first too. Brad Pitt, Seth Rogen, Ryan Reynolds were also considerations. Wow. But I got to say... Affleck does deliver pretty well here. I think that's maybe Affleck's, if not best performance, it's right up there. And I think it is because of the baggage that we bring with him. There's this scene Hmm. where he's standing next to Amy's picture and he kind of like they say cheese and he like smiles and it's so goofy and weird. And it made me think of like all the memes that Ben Affleck has been in. Is there been a more memed actor who's like smoking outside or he's like, in the Superman He's interview, so he looks really tired. sad. <laughs> right. <I know>. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's, <laughs> this guy who's either misunderstood or just made to look like a fool in the media. And so we bring that to the character. And for me, it just plays so well. It really of, works. And it, and it, it really works. And again, again, in the first part of the movie where you're like, is he guilty or not? What is he guilty of? And that first half where you're trying to figure it out, like who Ben Affleck is, like, I don't know if it plays as well with Brad Pitt, even though he's incredible. John Hamm, I think, can do it, though. Fincher normally just goes on the internet and looks for pictures of people to help him find the right type of actor in the role. And he saw pictures of Ben Affleck and noticed a particular smug smile on him that he felt was right for the role. And soon afterwards, Ben Affleck had the role. Uh, enough, enough to where I think in our description of 
smooth, charming, witty Affleck younger who wins uh, Amy's heart seems like a, a a way away from the Ben Affleck as an audience we think we know. Right? Like where is where was that guy? That he doesn't exist. We're used to our Affleck with a cigarette and a giant coffee, looking like life could not be harder. <laughs> Seriously, and, and it works so well for this movie. He does frustrated very well in this movie. Like you know, yeah. he's hiding more than he's divulging. And he and he studied men who were convicted of killing their wives in the media and Scott Peterson in particular. So mm. I, I I gotta say he he put his sources together and it, the, the director with Fincher and him. It, it, it is a it's a big click here and. We haven't talked about her yet, but I mean, Rosamund Pike, she got nominated for a ton of awards. Right. Boy, she delivers a heck of a performance here, Rob. Well, yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about her is the opposite of Ben Affleck, at least for me. Like, I have all this baggage. I know. I've seen him. He's been in my life for 20 years. Rosamund Pike is a complete mystery. So it's like, okay, who is she? What's what's going on beneath beneath the surface with her? What's there? And she's beautiful and she's powerful and she's mysterious. And so Reese Witherspoon, I believe, was originally going to be cast in that role. And she had bought the book and wanted it to be her. But I think Rosamund Pike is just like, you can see why she's the one Oscar nomination in this movie. Like, she's really, really powerful as this character. And it is the... This is know, not a ten- Reese Witherspoon role. <laughs> no, no. A, a total mistake, you know, with that. And, and again... Reese Witherspoon and Ben Affleck, we may not be talking about this movie now, you know? And so I think having Rosamund Pike... She realized that. Yeah. She realized that. Like, she, 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 even after she bought the property with the intention of producing and doing it herself, she's like, this isn't me. This isn't my lane. So, I mean, other beat names were considered like Charlize Theron, Natalie Portman, Emily Blunt, Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara might have done that pretty well. Rooney Mara, yeah. Uh, You know, Ken Fincher teamed up with her in Dragon Tattoo as well. So I know that that group works pretty well. Jessica Chastain, Abby Cornish were some of their names there. And so uh, I have to say, though, I mean, as talented as some of these are, I mean, I have to say like Rosamund Pike just nails this one out of the park. And when you're doing it so well like that, that's there's, there's some good names that I'm saying I'll pass on all those other ones. This is this is the performance of her career. And she channeled oh. Nicole Kidman's performance in To Die For, which is a movie we covered. And I definitely oh, yeah. see that here with the attention seeking and the, the 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 hunger for the media, and then as well Sharon Stone's iconic character from Basic Instinct. So, um, and then Carolyn Bissett Kennedy. So she's taken these influences, and I can see each one of those things entering into what she's doing here. And what a heck of a way to do all this! And Venture just picked her because you know she's had like you know even like at age thirty five, he thought that she was an unclear age appearance and she could pass for older and younger and and everything that she was doing and still be very appealing. And boy, it's her darkness. It's the mystery that she's able to convey. I mean, I, what a great line for like, you know, I want to know what's going on inside your head. Boy, she nails that. Yeah, I think she has this, not persona, but there's a quality of, and it's only after a certain amount of time, and and part of this is the good storytelling from Fincher. I think it's believable that Rosamund Pike, as this character, Amy, is capable of all of this stuff in a way that I don't think Reese Witherspoon's on-screen portrayal would be. Not saying it wouldn't be like a a challenge anybody would want to take, but yes, uh, it it is from playing a role of someone unhappy or from playing a, a part of the role is dealing with the pressures of her parents of marriage. I guess we can say 
having to weave in, into her contingencies and how, how to come out of this in the end. The, the last 20 minutes of this movie are maybe just as chilling. Getting back to life. You know, we have the, our little titles on the screen, our little subtitles or little headers, whatever you want to call them about, you know, one day gone, two days gone. Right. And it's like one day home, two days home, five weeks home. Thinking of that time passing with her in the house is as unsettling as seeing that knife go across the throat. It, it, it is very chilling. After we watch her hit herself with a hammer in the face, I know this character is so scary and damaged. It's hard to see beauty. You're right. Like, I mean, um, you know, when she's in the Neil Patrick Harris's house of like Desi's house, you're like, yes, that she's 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 physically attractive, but I've already seen what's going on under this hood, and I'm already running. I'm running hard. Well, in the you other know, direction she's a point. woman who's willing to kill herself just to get back at her husband. Like that's her mm -hmm. plan, and I and I buy it 100. percent I'm like, oh yeah, I believe that about her. She sells it. The script sells it, and I'm like, that is frightening. That's like a fatal attraction yeah. level stuff yes. here. Yeah, and she she knows that she would have to do that. You must procure the body to really make this stick. And uh, th there's not aside from the media, there's no way that she can keep tabs on the investigation uh, in, in you know without the sensationalized version. Uh, so uh, I I did find myself and not taken away from the movie, but only in thought, only in thinking about this movie and talk with you guys. Of I wonder how far into the eating candy bars and relaxing at this uh, campground, you know, she she does remove a couple of you know, throw yourself in the lake sticky notes from her calendar. By the way, a great uh, addition, a, a prop, a prop really meaning something, something so mundane as a calendar, but you see how she has all those sticky notes on there. And okay, this is when this happens. And she removes a couple of the ones that say like, kill yourself. And it, it, did, it does make me think if she in some type of growth within the movie would, would ever have decided not to go through with it, what is happiness for her that is not this uh, getting back in partnership with, with, uh, with, with Nick, which is its own revenge. But I, I wonder what that would be because I still feel as if we were presented with, with Amy's character of uh, living up to some kind of expectations or presenting a certain type of way I think we do get a little bit of glimpse of what does she really want? Well, she wants to lay by the pool and eat Kit Kats. Like that's I don't know. I, th I think the gears are churning when she's doing that. I think she's always she's always plotting. I think uh, Emily Ratajkowski uh, is in here as well, and Ben Affleck suggested her for the affair, uh, the object of his attention. There, Fincher was impressed with her work and ethic during the film, and uh, you know, being a real student to try and go to work here. Uh, so. She she had a good run here, and I think uh, Neil Patrick Harris. This is one of the ones that is also unexpected. I don't know that it works as well as with Tyler Perry's unexpected. Um, I know that he said that he worked hard and everything was drilled into like in the intimate scenes and everything that he was done. Pincher really rehearsed everything with him. He comes off as creepy, but I, I have to admit, you know, I don't want to spoil my hand. I feel like he may not be living up to the rest of the casting. Yeah, he's. <sighs> It's a weird part, honestly, because he's just like not he's not asking the obvious questions, which is like, OK, wait, why are you here? Like he kind of asks a little bit of like, why didn't you try to go home or whatever else? But he's just kind of duped by her. And he's like, 
he's at the crime scene trying to search for her and that sort of thing. And so he's again one of those guys who's like, okay, Amy's creepy, but he's also creepy. And it's like, mm-hmm. he's such a, again, like he gets, he, he's a comedy actor. And so it's hard not to see past that of like, this is the How I Met Your Mother guy who's from Smurfs and Doogie Hauser and that sort of thing. Is this the right part for him? So yeah, it is an, it is an interesting casting. Like, it works for me, but I, I wonder if other someone else could be stronger. His character seemingly gets everything that he wants and he lost her. And I could see it like him dwelling on that. Right. And again, he's he's got his own degree of being off kilter. Uh, certainly nowhere near in the league that Amy's in. But uh, I, I just don't think and I'm not I don't think it's so much venture. I think with a different actor, you'll get the full effect that you need. I don't think it's the writing and I don't think yeah. it's the direction on that one. I was lucky I didn't have that veil to see through because I didn't watch How I Met Your Mother. I'm familiar with his variety show. Uh, You're missing out. That's really funny. Uh, uh, but like <laughs> that's it was it was not hard for me to see him dive into this. Uh, so I, I I'm coming from a different point of view that I thought uh, he he was cold and uh, judgmental. I think. It, what what it, it, we can't always say it's the actor's choice, but the the decision to take the little ramekin of ice cream out of her hand as she's as she's eating it as she's kind of lapping up the media presence and also having her second or third bowl of ice cream uh he's seeing this image of this girl that he was obsessed about change and he's shallow yeah. enough to think that if she puts on even a little bit of weight that his little perfect world how it's going is being messed up uh and so that little bit of Control. There's so many words he used that are controlling and phrases that are sick that uh, I, I thought he actually did a, a really good job. I'm just lucky I didn't have to fight through his comedy roles. That That isn't what got me. I, I didn't see Harold and Kamara go to White Castle <laughs> in this while I was watching it, nor did I see Barney from How I Met Your Mother, which is definitely the role right. of his life. I mean, he's he's hilarious doing Barney. But I mean, I just felt like the mystery and the reactions and such. I just, the, 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 the desire, the, I don't know. Again, everybody else is so perfectly cast. It just, it's not even that badly done. I'm not saying like, this is a bad job. I'm just saying everything else is really, really right. David Fincher was originally going to do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Captain Nemo, but it took a development halt, which dropped him out and made him capable of doing this one. And I'm not the Fight Club fan that everybody else is. Like, everybody loved Fight Club. So, I mean, I get more on board with David Fincher shortly thereafter, like Panic Room, Zodiac. So, uh, I like Benjamin Button, Social Network, Girl with Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl. Like, like he found, it clicked at the new millennium for Agreed. him for me. And I, I've been on board with them. And so I think he deals better with this, like, torment and darkness like it's very suspenseful. I don't necessarily feel like Pinchin lives in suspense in that same degree, but he does have intricacy. He does have good characters. He has misdirection and he has pivots in his story and he has atmosphere all of his own. I do think atmosphere, there's just something about his films, the way they're shot. And for me, Zodiac is, I think his best film. I think that it's so powerful. It's another film about media, social network is a film about media and litigation. And so there's these higher up thematic things, but they're, they're kind of dark people dealing with dark things of wrestling with their own, own humanity. And it's, but they're original ideas. Um, Even when they're based on books or something else like that, they're very much like 
this is not franchise material, which when I hear 20,000 Leagues on the Sea, I'm like, no, that's not Fincher. He needs to be doing stuff that's yeah. his own thing. You know you say that, but I really wanted I, I really wanted my other three dragon or my other two dragon yeah. tattoo movies so bad. I would check Google's like, is it happening? Like, you know, for, for years and I gave up at some point. I was like, it's yeah. not happening. And I was so disappointed. It's I mean, uh it's my favorite Daniel Craig, it's my favorite Rooney Mars, it's my favorite venture. Like I just I loved it so much and they just didn't do it. And they tried to reboot it and it was nothing. It was the you know, that was a kick in the teeth. <laughs> I didn't need that, 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 that reboot hurt. I need to revisit um, it. I haven't watched it for years. Boys. You're inspiring me, Russell. Anyway, Dustin, you like this darkness. You like, you like these flawed characters. Do you like this mood, this, this dark atmosphere that Fincher's putting you in? Atmosphere, mood, great words to describe this. Modernity. Aside from Benjamin Button, I think there's not a lot of period specific stuff. It's it's all stuff that's like we know it exists in the world. It's not so involved in something niche like Michael Clayton, like incredibly legalese. Uh, it's it's enough to where a general audience kind of it's recognizable. I have to presume that let's just look at Tyler Perry's character here, where the guy who coaches you on what to say. There's a small percentage of people that are like, oh, the defense attorney does that and tells you what to say. But most of us know, right, that that's how it goes. And so the, the idea that we're, we're so close to uh, things that are maybe outside of our happy lives, and that's that just it's peripheral. It's just, a, it's just one or two circles away from the stuff that uh, we are generally used to. Uh, I, I think that is that that is it's it's not close it's it's just far enough away to say let me get a taste of this this uh world speaking of a taste of a world we do have our detective team in this movie uh who go down into that like abandoned mall yeah to go talk to that contact now that is something that i think most of our audience is like what is going on here i am tenser i am more afraid of what that could be. But there's a whole lot of people in my own social circles who know those back alley worlds and know those back rooms worlds and where things are harder. I didn't know North Car I didn't know North Carthage, but I was surprised to see that. We weren't in St. Louis. In fact, I think we were told we're two hours outside of St. Mm. Louis. So that 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 did take me by like, whoa, where are we now? <laughs> like I didn't know um yeah, I, I, this was very different than the rest of North Carthage that was depicted. So. It's very different, <laughs> but it's not particularly exotic. You know, it's not Pandora. It's not uh, right. Aliens 3. Uh, it, it's, it's not. No, it's, but it, I mean, it felt like it was in another league of like, I felt like the bad side of town from what I was seeing by everything else couldn't be that bad. I know they mentioned there's homeless vagrants and stuff walking through his McMansion suburb, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe... I don't know. There's the, that that mall. That that mall struck me as like, have we gone too far down the atmosphere? Well, with this absolutely mall? not. And I, I I would I would challenge people to try to go too far to lean too far into the atmosphere. It's something that people laud all the time. Is if you can feel as if yeah. the city or the setting is a is an additional part or character of your movie yeah. or your TV show. The 
two and a half hours, you're in this, you're in it. And it's not where you're from. Very few, I guess we would say, live through the media hype of a uh, missing woman and uh, the the husband with the murder charge like that. It's it's such a seemingly it's a story we seemingly know, but we know we, we really know nothing about. So that's that's what I'm looking when I'm looking at this list of this venture stuff. I'm thinking that's maybe the very loose zip tie how I could kind of bundle some of these things together. Uh, and and it it works so many times. So many of these are hits uh, on you know the, the dartboard. This is a, this is a very high scoring list. Oh, even when I said I don't love Fight Club as much as everybody else, it's not a miss by any means. The only miss for me is Alien Three, and I, like I said, that's studio interference. That's other things going wrong at that point. So um, now I will say this: I want to know you've read the Gillian Flynn book. I have, uh, Rob. I have not. So. Obviously, I asked my dad, had you seen this movie? Because this is right up his alley. And he goes, you know, I had, but boy, the book's in a whole nother level of good from this. Do you have a letdown? You said you read the book first, which I got to say might put me in a whole different frame of mind. This whole was fresh for me. What's that like for you having read the book? It really did grip me. What's interesting with the book is Amy came across, you know, again, it's the own voice in your head, but you don't get Rosamund Pike's like, she has such a like, deep breathy sort of voice that there's a little bit like okay what's going on there the book just made it seem like this spunky girl who's like i met the man of my dreams we're living reality you know we're living our dream romance and then uh oh he's starting to get a little violent uh oh like and you see her slipping down and so just the voice that i heard in my head and then again that midpoint was so shocking did you hear reese witherspoon in your head <laughs> kind of, i mean kind of like like something a little more innocent and bubbly who's like oh this whole thing is like unraveling for me and a lot of the ideas about like what a relationship is what makes it work the structure of the book every chapter is like one day gone two days gone three you know like those sort of subtitles in the movie are the way that chapters happen in the book and so it's really good and um i think we've talked a ton about fincher but like this script is really, really smart, and she adapted it. Like, she's the one who went in. They had other screenwriters, so they're going to have do it. And she's kind of ultimately the one who went. And that doesn't normally happen. And if it does happen, a novelist no. adapting their own work turns out pretty badly. And so I really admire. I think the script is so sharp. It's funny. It's different than the book uh, structurally, and that's hard to do. And so, but the book is a great, great read. Um I do wish from a surprise standpoint, I could have had that experience of like not knowing what was going to happen, but it still played for me in the movie. So book a movie. Oh, gosh. I'm going to say the movie. I'm going to say like it's it's ventures that good yeah. for you then. Yeah, because sense. But, I, I, I because stuff like the shove in the wall, those visual things that like don't you can't do in the book. There's just moments like that. Um, that just plays so well. And so I love, love, love this book. But um, I think the movie is special. No, I'm, I, I can see you saying that, and especially with your love of adventure. So that makes total sense. His neighborhood is so upscale, and they live in this um, suburban bubble that I, I don't get a good feel for the rest of town. The bar seems to end up being a pretty gentrified, nice part of downtown. Right. They opened it up as a real bar. that You couldn't, you can't go there anymore, unfortunately. It didn't make it. But they uh, they actually opened a real bar for the movie. But the degree of authenticity and the time put into this, I, I, I think it's yeah. pretty good. I think um, I think it's really funny that uh, given that they were from New York, Ben Affleck had to wear a Yankees hat. 
at one point and he would not. And there was an utter refusal to wear a Yankees hat where Affleck's character is at the airport. Like he's, he puts a hat on very, very briefly. He's a diehard Red Sox fan. For those of you who don't know Affleck, like he's a Boston guy that, that hurts. And so uh, he said, David, I love you. I'll do anything for you, but I'm not going to wear a Yankees hat. And uh, it, it actually stalled, it stalled production and uh, they ended up settling for a Mets hat. So uh, I noticed that right Venture, away. Venture is- I noticed I, I, it was almost my hidden gem, but I knew that you would bring it up in your research. Well, I, <laughs> I didn't know for sure, but I had a feeling you would. Uh, I, I was like, that Mets hat is going to come up on the show. <laughs> I'll do a nude for you, but I'm not going to wear a Yankees hat. My full frontal, no problem. Yankees, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> so I just thought that was a very, very funny thing. There's one scene that really jumps out to me on this watch is... He's standing on the stairs and Carrie Coon and the police are outside and you just see the lights like flashing on him from the police and you feel this like he's in this dark cave and the police are coming and it's like justice is caving in on him. Like eventually the police are going to catch him. This is before you know kind of what's happened and everything else. But but I, when I watched mm-hmm. that, I was like, I oh, this is he did kill her. Right. This this is a murderer. Yeah. Or if not, two thi- you think two things are going to happen. One this guy killed his wife or two, he's going to be falsely arrested for the rest of his life. And those are the two fate only possible fates. I thought there was a hitman possibility. I thought, I thought there was a paid mm. murder possibility. Like, uh, I didn't do it, but I'm not right, somebody right. who did. This guy's guilty. So like, uh, like that was in my head too, at one point. So gosh, I love all the misdirection. You know, we're, we're this far into the podcast and we're still talking about things that I thought were going to happen and the things that did happen. That's so good. Uh, I can see why it got praised for, for all of its screenwriting. Things that it also got praised for, it's a Grammy Award nominee for best sound, sorry, best score and soundtrack on the visual media there. So we have Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, but Trent Reznor with Atticus Ross here. Fincher's musical brief uh, to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross was based on the visit that he paid to a spa where within the music that he heard that relaxed him, that he perceived as creepy yeah. and made him feel uncomfortable. And he gave the idea to them through a passive, uh, you know, passive but relaxing, but actually needs to instill a sense of dread. And with that direction, oh man, did Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross nail this? We can really envelop it with the rest of the atmosphere. You aren't being pushed or swayed with uh, with this music, I think. It's kind of in the back of your mind or it's kind of uh, the hairs on the back of your neck uh, in that thriller aspect. Unsettling, uh, look, looking to your left or right, there's no imminent danger, but it just kind of feels as if uh, things are escalating. Uh, I actually am going to reserve a little bit because I, I, I selected some of my superlatives based on this info. Ah, okay. Yep, that's on brand for sure. It's so innovative, right? Like... I I love what you said about the spa music kind of gone wrong. It's like this score is unlike anything else. It's atmospheric. And and again, all these little decisions, the lighting, the performances, even the staticness of the shots, the camera's not moving a ton. And so the music is really carrying so much of the emotion mm-hmm. and atmosphere. And um, it's it's not like anything else. I mean, I think Trent Reznor really is bringing something to it. Social Network is another one. I, I think that might have been the first score that they did together, but like that's another one of those scores that just really creates this atmosphere in such a powerful way. Speaking of things I love, I love movie superlatives. Rob, do you want to help me do some movie superlatives? I'd love to. 
All right. MVP of Gone Girl. So I'm going to give the MVP to Gillian Flynn. I know we've talked a ton about Fincher, but I do think if you're asking what makes this movie special, it's the construction of the story. It's so smart. It's so innovative. And if there's one person who really deserves the credit for that, it's her. There's other great Fincher films, but there's, like you said, there's other Fincher films that fall flat on their face and that sort of thing. And what makes this one special and what made me excited to talk about this is the script, is the way the story is constructed. So she's my MVP. I love it. Dustin, MVP. I am going with Fincher here. There are some creative choices that when they come across, when you watch something for the first time, you like you immediately in your head just go, oh, risky. And every single one of these in this movie, I go, oh, wow, good payoff. Um, so... Uh, I, I like to give credit to writers as well, but uh, this, I, I think, I think the body of work and then this on top of it, uh, it's, it's David Fincher for me. I mean, you guys picked the obvious too. And I mean, I want to say that I probably side a little more with Rob on this one. The the story is outstanding and I'm, I'm not a big fiction book reader, but this one has me a little bit curious. I have to admit. So uh, the fact that she also did the screenplay adaptation, as you've already pointed out, in today's era, this is more. This is growing increasingly uncommon, and when it happens, you normally get three other people writing it with you. And um, I don't see that on the credits here, so I'm going to give it to Gillian Flynn as well, but not to Rosamund Pike, by the way. So I mean, she's outstanding as well. Uh, you know, I, I um, <laughs> for not positive reasons, when before I saw this movie, I you said Rosamund Pike, I'd be like die another day and uh this is the palate cleanser that the whole career <laughs> needed you know so like now we use the rosamund pike i think of gone girl instead of die another day and that is a very positive shift in my perception of, of somebody so um absolutely yeah uh best supporting actor rob i mean we've talked about affleck rosamund pike i don't think i've talked about kim dickens yet and I really like her kind of just like earthy performance as this sort of detective. She's who's good. looking, who's breaking things down, and she's very measured. And she's just a great foil for these two big expressive actors to play off of. I kind of buy her, and she, for me, she really grounds the movie. And so it's not a flashy part. It's not super sexy. She doesn't get a, you know, have all the fun lines like Tyler Perry does or even Carrie Coon, who I love. But I think... Kim Dickens, I just want to mention her because I think she adds a lot to the film. She does. And I really like that they pair her with this seemingly dislikably overly simple and junior investigator that's with her. It's like, ever hear the, the most simple explanation is usually the right one? She goes, actually, I've found that that's never the case. So I mean, it's a like, great moment. I yeah. mean, they're they're good together. So, I mean, uh, she's clearly a cut above everybody else there as the senior investigator there. So you're right. Her sharpness. I really enjoyed her character and what she was bringing to the misdirection of this. So great pick. Dustin, best support. I almost went Kim Dickens here, but it's, I had to go Tyler Perry. You have to. Not a, not a ton of screen yeah. time, but uh, you, you said it, Rob, electric. And uh, this this movie's wit should be applauded more. No one told me it was so quick and charming and 
that that should be as as part of its whole experience and uh tyler perry's scenes the, the the gummy bear thing it almost made my best quote i just uh, this is it's not silly it's not childish it's just uh in even the dialogue between you know uh between the twins uh nick and uh Carrie Coon's character, Margo, like th- there's so much quickness and in, in Tyler, Tyler's great on screen. So uh, he, that was my best supporting here. Mine as well. And Tyler said he, he did not know anything about the movie source or of the, or the novel and that David Finchner, uh, that, you know, his reputation and he wouldn't have accepted the movie had he known the weight of this because he said, I probably would have walked away from it because if I had known David Fincher was and really known his body of work, or if I had known how popular this book was and how many people love this book, my agent knew that and didn't tell me that until I had signed on. That's good that not because, I mean, I don't like to do these roles where it's so magical for people already and that it's already become something very special. There's a lot of pressure with associated with that with what it wants to be and I will do nothing but disappoint them. And boy, you did not disappoint anybody with this, Tyler Perry. You did a great job. So thank you, Tyler Perry's agent, for not telling him what this was. And please give more things like this to him unknowingly. So... Um, hidden gem, Rob. Uh, I'm gonna go with this. May be a weird one, but the amazing Amy books. <laughs> I just thought like it's really fun that these kind of fun classic children's books that like made her all this money. We're talking so much about the media, but like I was talking to my wife the other night about different strokes for some reason, and like child actors who get so beat up and it like overwhelms them and takes over their life. This is kind of one of those like subtle sort of stories where. She's not necessarily a child actor, but she's kind of growing up under this microscope and it totally messes her up and essentially turns her into a psychopath. And yeah. so the fact that these fun <laughs> little like Matilda, you know, fun, what Nancy Drew type of books Madeline. mess her up in such a way. Yeah. I think it's such a cool character detail that it's just a little throwaway that you can miss. It's really parents. important to the story. Terrible yeah, crazy parents. Terrible parents. <laughs> yeah, they're the real villains of the story. They are terrible. Yeah, so... Facts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dustin, Hidden Gem. I had two. It's hard to narrow it down, but both both uh, actors, Missy Pyle and Casey Wilson. Uh, Missy Pyle is uh, one of the, like, uh, the TV hosts who is just so recognizable. Her features are really quite plastic if it weren't margot robbie and if missy Pyle had a more gravitas she would have been the barbie casting uh, i guess we can say like the fox news blonde version is yes. missy Pyle's character ellen okay. abbott uh, so so I, I think she she always stands out as uh nancy grace i think is that the character that you know like you're yeah channeling exactly that? yeah yes um, yes uh, so I, I thought she was great. And then a sm- smaller hidden gem to Casey Wilson. I'm, I'm very plugged into the L.A. improv comedy scene with podcasts, shows, and that th- the way they all kind of know each other. And Casey Wilson is uh, very funny and very quick. And, uh, Former her, SNL her alum, too. Mm-hmm. And sh- she's, she's the idiot neighbor. And I loved how her role fit into Amy's plan. So I thought she did a good job. Yeah, absolutely. I loved how hearing her described as like local idiot, like with such scorn and mm-hmm. disdain. But like, again, she's manipulated this person, become friends with them, seemingly all with the purpose of using them. Devious character. Uh, my hidden gem is going to be the music. I talked about it a lot. I mean, this, this, this score 
is peanut butter and jelly for David Fincher and Trent Reznor. That's great. Recast somebody. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, Rob, who would it be? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but probably for Neil Patrick Harris, I would recast. And I'm not sure who the right person is. Like, I, w- I wonder if it's someone a little sweeter and less creepy, if it would help, you know, like make that moment a little bit more shocking. And so I, I don't know, maybe like a, maybe another How I Met Your Mother, like Jason Siegel or something like that, who's like wow. kind of sweet and You're going real kind. Sweet. Yeah, who's <laughs> kind of sweet, but then it like, oh, there's this creepy part to him. So that's one I'll throw out there. I don't know. That was the first one that came to mind. Wow. Dustin, how about you? Who's your recast? So I mentioned there's two TV hosts that matter in this movie, and I don't know if we need two of them. I, I don't think that's needed, uh, but I think Missy Pyle is so good. I'd rather her be swapped to a, uh, a more uh, personal role in this movie, which is uh, Lola Kirk's role, Greta, uh, one of the Ozark ruffians, the trailer trash friend who robs Amy. Uh, I I think that uh, having her in almost that Jamie Presley, my name is Earl type character uh, would be, it'd be funnier, but it's not meant to be comedic in that way. I'll, I'll be honest, with the change one thing and with recast, there wasn't a ton I was really looking at here. Uh, So I just I like the idea of her being just slightly slightly different, readjusted into that movie. I also went after Neil Patrick Harris for my recast. I these are going to seem like overcastings, given where we are in this point in history. But this, if you go back in time to when this was released, it, I don't think it's going to be as absurd. So I'm going to go with Killian Murphy or Jared Leto stepping in for for Desi. Hmm. And yes, Tom I like Ryan, both of those because they're they're slight. Both of them are slight people. Yes, and I'm, uh, and I know somewhere our co-host uh, Brian Fry is, you know, fell off of his chair, going like, "Don't you dare put him in this movie that I love." So, um, so <laughs> best shot, Rob. I love the sequence where it's building all the way up. You're seeing the burnt up diary. You're seeing him kind of have that moment of like. <clears throat> revelation of like oh my gosh she's been writing this whole story and framed and then it dips to black and then boom that shot of her just in the car and it's this simple shot of her in the car but it just tells such a story of like oh this is a mastermind she's free and it's just one of those shots that's like burned in my head i can see exactly how it's looked exactly how it's framed and it's just such a simple shot that tells such a powerful story so i don't know why but that's the one that really stuck with me that's the big reveal where she's in the car and like, yep. Yeah. I, yeah. I, that was, I very nearly picked that. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that one up. So what about you, Dustin? Uh, Nick and Amy are sadly having sex against a mirror in their home with Amy's diary voiceover going, uh, Nick uses me for sex when he wants, otherwise I don't exist. Uh, and yeah. uh, you, you're seeing her face with just no emotion through the mirror and you're seeing uh, the portrayal of through flashback of a version of Nick who is just using her body and it's uh, extremely real. And as we mentioned before um, that, that this, this movie does feel very intimate on a large scale. And so that kind of thing I know exists for a large population of uh, what is 
the what is the the sex after marriage problem and this is one of the ways it's shown and it is it's very sad but also really artistic and this one actually isn't static uh, you're right rob a lot of a lot of the shots are but this one just gonna uh, swings uh maybe 30 degrees or so just to yeah. get that mirror and it's 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 really good and another one of those moments that you're not sure is it real is it truthful is it an exaggeration of something that's real or is it totally fabricated mm-hmm. even upon future viewings we don't really know but i mean it still still wraps you in so my best shot's going to be the headshot of amy when she's heard the we see the back of her head and then she turns her head up as they're saying what will be one of the more iconic quotes here later in the show but uh you know what's going on inside your head so that's uh and she turns up and there's a there's a sense of dread and not dread i should say there's a sense of danger and fear that comes across you as the viewer having sat through what you sat through when you see her face like that i think when you google gone girl that face shot of of rosamund pike is probably one of the first things that you'll get so absolutely best scene rob are you going back to your best shot scene yeah that that probably is my best scene is that um just that reveal the way it builds the way it happens there like that i think that scene is so powerful and then you know the end where he like that sort of confrontation with both of them those are the two scenes that just stick with me and i don't mean to steal some of the best scenes but those are the scenes that i think about over and over again and just wrestle with and are the anchors of the movie for me dustin's clapping with his mic muted looks like he just made you happy there dustin are you in line with him uh no, I was doing the way that uh, he says in that last scene, like, and we're partners in crime and he's holding the, her hand and he kind of like class, like kind of claps her hand in a yep. knowing, loving way. Like that, that's what I was doing. Ah, uh, got it. Yes. Dustin, best scene. Dustin. I was torn and I, I, I wanted to do the, like, dis- toward the end, the, the shower scene where they're talking to one another he's saying i'm gonna leave she's saying you wouldn't be that dumb to leave that scene's music is the resolution of a symphony it's when the tones that had been discordant have come together and it's so so good but i think it gets trumped by the tyler perry and uh his sister Margot prepping him for the show uh it, because it's giving you a little inside look as to how that goes and uh the the wit is quick there and you, you get the deceit a, a bit. You get the performance. A lot about this movie is about performance. It's how you win someone over when you're courting them. Are you presenting who you really are? And and what happens once you've snagged your catch? What happens when you get married? Is Are you still performing the same way? And th- that he, Ben Affleck's character says something along the lines of his, his sister goes, oh, you hate that watch. He goes, I love this watch. And I love this tie, just like I love my wife. And it's so very much like, look how easily they can put on a face. And I, I love it. It was so well done. And my best scene is right in line with Rob's. The reveal scene at that 106 mark that we spent so much time talking about. It's a mind blower. And it's so good that it's in the middle of the movie. And many of Rob's points throughout this podcast nailed it. So I'm not going to belabor it. It's, it's 100% in line. That's my best scene. And what a great scene it is. Best wardrobe or makeup moment, Rob. Fincher can have some violence, have those sort of moments. There's not a lot in this movie, but the one that he has just like burns in your head. And that is the 
scene where she seduces uh desi and just you know slits his throat and the way she does it it's so violent and you're just immersed in it and you're seeing like okay this is the fu- this is like the black widow fully like it, i feel like the whole movie has kind of been leading up to that moment and just the nature of the makeup and the white bed sheets and everything else it's just like yeah all right here we are and so i i think it's gratuitous in some ways and in other ways it's like perfectly done of like it's been two hours plus to lead up to that one makeup moment and so for me it it does really play they said that scene which took a very long time to shoot the amount of preparations the lighting involved with that but then once you slash somebody's face like that you spill so much blood all over everything the actors have to take a very long time to get cleaned up to get all the red off of them, to get everything absolutely, because like you said, they're dumping an enormous amount of red blood everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you don't think about. So when you want a lot of blood, it's, it's going to take some time if you want to reshoot that more than once. So, uh, yeah. But I'll, and I'll Fincher likes a lot of takes, so yes, he does. how many takes of that they got. <laughs> yes, he does. How about you, Dustin? Nick goes to grab her hand as they're walking down the stairs with a lot of people present. And she's wearing very classic, like black sweater with a white uh, collared shirt underneath it. It might not be an actual full shirt. It might be a mock or a dickie or something. But that look is very much the, oh, this is for TV. This is, they need to see this like conservative style of dress. It's all very fabricated and uh, Mm -hmm. it, it really fit. Why is she dressed like a Mennonite was another one of those good lines, too. Like when, like when, mm-hmm. when, when, when the, the girl he's having an affair with comes out on <laughs> and portrays yeah. herself as being extremely conservative and victimized by it. So, I mean, that was a good wardrobe line. But I do have to fall in line with, with Rob. I mean, the, the, white, the white that she's wearing, again, it's hard to view this as like titillating because this is a very dangerous person who right. we already know that she has framed somebody as a sexual predator who was like an accused of rape. And because we know of that, I think that's where we're going again. It turns out it's worse. She's about to step it up to go to murder. But I mm-hmm. really think that she's, she's staging the scene for sexual assault in this one, which is setting my expectations for danger already. So I'm not necessarily thinking sexy. I'm seeing like this, this guy who's head over heels over being lured in. So I'm afraid for him in a horror movie sort of way, but also flip turn the next scene that she's wearing that same piece of wardrobe. She hops out of the car with all that blood, which would probably be brown and dried after a long car ride from, from a lake house, but it's not, it's still like freshly like red all over and right in front of all the media for everyone to see her in all of its splendor come in. So the, the white, in terms of like this luring in and in noirs white we learned this with double indemnity white is often not necessarily this pure safe element and it's not it's luring you into your death and obviously being just composed with this very strong red is that that's to me that's the the wardrobe piece for sure so oh that's interesting um change one thing rob Sticking with the blood, it is weird to me. Like, it does take me out of it. Like, how long she's covered in blood. I think, I'm trying to remember the whole sequence, but she comes back home, and then she goes to the hospital, and then she comes home again, and she finally showers. And I was sort of like, would she not shower, like, earlier on? Like, would she not have got, like, it was, like, almost like they're trying to set up this epic scene where she's coming clean, and he's naked and coming clean, and they're coming back together. Um 
but I don't know that that scene felt a little forced to me of of all as much as I've like complimented the screenplay that scene felt a little bit like okay we're trying to really do something metaphorical of their coming together and the blood's washing off and that sort of stuff and it just it's a, probably a weird scene to pick but it but watching it this time it kind of took me out of it I was like wait a minute was she not really have showered before then how long has this been going on um <laughs> this is we- yeah. the, the, this is weird and so again just one of those little details that like took me out of it on the way home at a dress stop, I had to kill somebody else so I could have fresh blood put on me. So I just killed somebody right. else. Just, just, just throw that in there, you know, in the exposition. No, no I'm kidding. Uh, Dustin, no, no, how about she's you? got a taste for it. More screen time or work with the detective duo on their own, the same way that we had them go into that abandoned mall. I, I, I thought that they when you have something with crime and you have the detectives on the case, I think back to collateral with Ruffalo's character kind of following behind. Um, Michael Mann was actually somebody I was thinking about when we were doing our director comparisons, but uh, I like them and I think that would be fun, but would actually change. I'm, I'm now getting into like, even making this movie longer and that's very much not on brand for me. And so I'm actually going to roll this over into my final rating of this, of this movie. So I'll, I'll get back into that in a sec. I think it's worth mentioning too. I watched this movie in pieces because I watch almost everything in pieces because that's how my life is right now. I rarely get, I rarely get two hours and 45 minutes as a, like just, you know, between work and like being a dad and stuff like that. That's just how it goes. So the first time I turned this off, I turned this off probably at like 40 minutes right before, right before they moved to Missouri. And then I think, um, I I think that I had a very short viewing. I turned it off at like the one hour mark right before the reveal. I remember remember like, (laughs) I remember this turning into like, I mean, I had an uncanny ability and my first thinking was like, Man, this would be a very good TV show because I keep I keep tuning in and like it was almost perfectly pre-orchestrated and TV show like structure to get to get this ingested in a certain way. So, um, I'll be honest with you, it would make an amazing TV show. Uh, I think that that would be you know I think having a lot of the great movies have TV shows. So I might change one thing is I think a TV show spinoff would be amazing. Hmm. I'd watch that. Yeah. All right. Uh, best quote, Rob. So if I'm doing like meaning of the movie, I think this is like a movie about marriage in a, in a really dark, twisted way. And there's some great quotes. The one that really jumped out to me is she says, the only time you liked yourself is when we were trying to like someone like me. I'm not a quitter. I killed for you. Who else can say that? You think be, you'd be happy with a nice Midwestern girl? No way, baby. I'm it. And then Nick says, you're delusional. You're insane. Why would you want this? Yes, I loved you. All we did is resent each other, try to control each other. We cost each other pain. And Amy looks at him and says, that's marriage. That that whole thing is like just incredible screenwriting and an incredible kind of dark theme exploration of like what marriage is. I'm happily married, by the way. So chilling. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, got, I got chills just like, I was like, oh, that's scary. Like, you know, yeah. Dustin, how about you? It's Margot and our, uh, and Bolt are, are arguing about like prepping for the show. And she says, what, you wanted to be a trained monkey? And he responds, a trained monkey who doesn't get lethal injection. 
<laughs> like that's, that's that's the job. The job is yes, he's going to say exactly what I tell him to say, and we're going to save his ass. Yeah, I really like the opening lines when they say, "When I think of my wife, I always think of the back of her head." I like to picture. Sorry, I uh, I like picture her lovely skull unspooling her brain, trying to get answers, primal questions of a marriage. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? What have we done to each other? And what will we do? And the last lines are, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? What have we done to each other? And what will we do? Whoa. That's how you start and finish a movie. I mean, you know, it was Book chilling ends. and unclear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. That, that, that's, that, that, that pairing is amazing. And it's a longer one, but I just have to say, like, nobody picked it. I really thought we did this. But, I mean, it is an insightful commentary on media i really thought the um nick loved a cool girl i was pretending to be a cool girl men always use that don't they as their defining compliment she's a cool girl cool girl is hot cool girl is game cool girl is fun cool girl never gets angry at her man she only smiles in a chagrined loving manner and then presents her mouth for oral and like that um he so evidently Sorry, um, she likes what he likes he's if he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish magna then he then uh sorry if he likes Girls Gone Wild, then maybe she's a babe who talks football and endures Buffalo Wild Wings at Hooters. And when I met Nick Dune, I knew he wanted a cool girl. And for him, I admit I was willing to try. I stripped myself uh, raw uh, down below. I drank canned beer watching Adam Sandler movies. I ate cold pizza and I remained a size two. And I blew him semi-regularly. I lived in the moment and I was absolutely game. Wow. Like, the... The degree of getting under the hood of somebody in that mechanical way of thinking that detached, I guess, I'm not sure if that's a, I'm, I'm, that's not a sociopath, I guess that's, um, but boy, that's a very interesting psychological study of, you know, having that much insight to like step back, to control the scene and to basically model one's actions with an intended consequence like that. It's a... Uh, I mean, Russell, I think it's incredibly wow. common. It's just that when you put words to it like that is when it starts to seem in the way you're, you know, sociopathic. But I think that is that is uh, courtship. It is w when you have 30 seconds to right. sell yourself. That's exactly the world. I mean, it, it's an insightful comment about like the expectations are put on women, too, though. Yes. I mean, so like the Hollywood industry does that. So. This is the quote that's iconic from the movie that's probably lasted and put on blogs and put in tweets and that sort of stuff. The cool girl monologue. You can Google it. You can read all about it. Like it is probably the kind of like Tyler Durden fight club. It's like that sort of lasting legacy of this movie is that whole monologue. Yeah, it's outstanding. Uh, I edited that slightly, so I stumbled out a few things here and there. I heard you edit that in real time. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so we've come full circle. Rob, can you tell us one more time where we can hear more from you on the Meaning of the Movie podcast? Yeah, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on you know, Spotify, Apple, anywhere else. Um, and if you've listened this long, then you love talking about movies, thinking about movies. And so um, come... Look at our feed, look for a movie that you've seen before, click on it, uh, and just listen to an episode and see if you like it. We love meeting new listeners, and um, that's part of the reason that I love getting to do podcasts like this, is to hear other perspectives on movies. And so we really do some of this stuff and do some different stuff as well, of really wrestling of what the soul of a film is. And so find a movie you love and listen to an episode and see what you think. 
All right. I'm looking forward to the meaning of crank. Just <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it on the list. <laughs> no, you don't have to. <laughs> you really don't. I'm going to have you on an episode and we're going to talk about crank. <laughs> I was on the crank episode already. I've done my time. <laughs> All right. Uh, full circle here on a five star rating. Half stars being the worst. Five stars being the best. Half star intervals. Rob, what would you rate Gone Girl? I'm going to give Gone Girl 4.5 stars. I think probably when I first saw it, it was four stars for me. I thought, oh, that was really good. And I've just, it's grown on me over the years because like I said before, like they don't make it like this anymore. And so it's so tight, so smart, so fun, engaging. For me, it's four and a half stars. Great. Dustin, how about you? How many stars? I really like this. I really liked this movie. I, I settled on 4.5 stars as well, but it's the closest to five I think I've ever given. I think the only thing that, I, that is stopping me from the full five is the way that you described it, Russell, is like you watched it 40 minutes then another 20 minutes. I think if we had a little more flesh fleshing out of some of our like detective characters and some of our other characters, like our, you know, our attorney, this could have been uh, like a four part hour long segment, like mini series. Yes. That, that when you mentioned the thing about TV earlier, I was like, that's exactly what I was thinking. This could have been, you know, a three parter or, or a four parter. Like well, I mean, that, 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 that twin peaks reboot, the 17 episodes of anywhere from an hour to an hour 40, uh, you have to be a special type of fan to like that. I will say this movie is so good. I think I'll probably, if that's the only thing, if that's the only thing, I'm going to go ahead and just in real time bump it up to five. This was very good. So uh, yeah, this is going to go on my five star list of the year. I'm also going to follow Rob's suit as I've done many times tonight. I like the way you think, Rob. I'm going 4.5 <laughs> stars. This is a fantastic movie. It is a jaw dropper. It is one of those ones that will just make you pause with your mouth ghastly open like, you know, like, what? That's a yeah. special thing for a movie to do. And like you said, usual suspects, like there's these like, aha, like moments. This is bigger than an aha moment. This is a moment of true shock of, am I watching this? Like, this isn't the way movies do these things. So a refreshing, well-presented David Fincher was the man for the job here. 4.5 as well for me. I'm not sure what keeps me from going up, up higher. It's perhaps the rewatchability, perhaps, and maybe, maybe to some degree, it is very bleak. So um, maybe maybe that unfulfilling, like, I don't get done with this and go like, I feel good. So <laughs> there's, I was trying to put it into words, too. And when I couldn't put it into words, it's why I gave it the full five. But I guess there is something about it, which is where it's like of our two warring parties, of our of our two principles, they don't both win. One doesn't win. One doesn't lose. They both kind of lose. And that that's where you might be left a little empty at the end of this. But uh, when you mention rewatchability, I think this movie is prime for rewatching now that you knowing what you know now, it could be such a different viewing experience. It's not one where it's like, all right, gather the family around and get the popcorn. Instead, it's a, ooh, I feel like thinking today. It is a thinker, though. So. I'm just glad you guys liked the movie. I wasn't sure what you were going to think or where you stood on it. Sometimes my co-host on my podcast, I'm just really jazzed. I'm like, I adore this movie. And then he comes on and it's just like, it wasn't that good. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is great. So 
I was ready to go to war with you guys if you didn't no, like this movie because well, I because I'm I want to defend this movie. I think it's so good, so fun, so interesting. It so. from it did well. It's a good movie. People like it. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. You gave us a sh- or you gave us a short list, by the way. I mean, we got to choose from it. By the way, your short list was excellent. If everybody gave us a short list that good, I would be a happier person all the time. I mean, <laughs> I I really wanted to do Boyhood very badly, and I know Dustin was excited about Gone Girl. I was like, I I do love Gone Girl a lot too, so I can't go wrong here. How long is Boyhood? It's long. It's but long, it's, right? It's, it's it's probably three hours. It probably is, Dustin. You were lucky. You were lucky that you gave us a two hour and thirty minute movie that I <laughs> because because if you would have got if you would have gone three, then we re- we would have been warring. I think. <laughs> Boyhood is like nothing else. I really hope we do it at some point on the show. To be honest with you, because I think it's just a link later is amazing. Oh, I think I'm sick that day, Russell. Well, he, it's a Texas movie. He's he's from Austin. He's our yeah, guy from Austin. It's you know? Austin's Link Later Town. Yeah, you're right. All right, maybe. All right, fine. When we get Rob back on, we'll do uh, we'll do Boyhood. I would definitely take you up on that. I, I don't know. I know who is not. Don't put Chad on that show. <laughs> so that's not a Chad episode. All right. Anyway, Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I got three steamy, spicy movies for us. We're going to go with option number one, Chinatown from 1974. A private detective hired to expose an adulterer in 1930s Los Angeles finds himself caught up in a web of deceit, corruption, and murder. Option number two, Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988? A toon-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of murder. And option number three, Body Heat from 1981. A beautiful Florida woman seduces a seedy lawyer with the hidden agenda of having him kill her rich husband. What's it going to be, Russ? Let's go with one of the most beautiful on-screen presences ever, <laughs> Miss Jessica Rabbit with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, hey, she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. That's right. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much. Thanks, fellas. That was a lot of fun. Thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights, the Retro Movie Roundtip. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram at Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. And email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. I may be old-fashioned, but I thought murder was against the law.